0: Hello, Vass here with the How To Academy podcast. I hope you're safe and well. This week, we were joined by environmentalist Philip Limbry, whose advocacy has led to major continent-wide reforms in animal welfare. He's the CEO of Compassion in Wild Farming and the author of the book Farmageddon, the true cost of cheap meat. He spoke to Matthew Stadlin.
1: Philip, welcome.
2: Matt, thank you for having me along.
1: These are strange times.
2: They are, yeah. I mean, who would have thought? Uh, But uh, yeah, difficult times. But uh, yeah, it's great to be talking to you all the same.
1: It's important to keep the conversation going, isn't it? Because we've been on stage together at Hay in front of a big live audience. There's obviously a huge buzz to that. But this sort of interaction, whether through live streamed events or on podcasts, I think is really really important because it it helps us maintain lines of communication keeps us human keeps us connected and keeps us talking about the really important things and one of the really important things to talk about is animal welfare and how that connects in with pandemics and a sustainable future not just for animals themselves but also for us humans
2: Absolutely. You're quite right, Matt, that it's so important to keep the conversation going. It's actually more important to keep the conversation going now than ever before. And you've touched on it a little bit there in that uh, in my realm, Compassion in World Farming, we're we're an animal welfare environmental organisation. We have a clear mission, which is to get animals, uh, farmed animals out of cages and confinement get them out of factory farms. And why is that more relevant today than ever before? Well, because keeping animals in cruel conditions, in conditions where they suffer through, through confinement and, uh, uh, and what have you, really it creates the perfect breeding ground for new and more deadly diseases. It creates the perfect breeding ground for the next pandemic. Why is that so? Well, if we think about thousands, Uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of animals in a confined space, living in their own uh, faeces uh, throughout their lives. That's a a fantastic breeding ground for viruses to, to replicate and to mutate and to get out into the environment, jump the species barrier, and start infecting humans. Is this but an academic fantasy? Well, actually, we can just scroll back 10 years ago to the Americas and just look at what happened with swine flu, which came out of factory farmed pig farms in North America and Mexico uh, and killed somewhere in the region of about half a million people worldwide. It's now a lesson in history that we've forgotten, but COVID-19, which didn't come from factory farms, but is thought to have come through the treatment of animals in wet markets in uh, in China, in these these live uh, markets where, where animals are, are kept in, in cruelty. This has shown us how fragile our society is, how our way of life can be snatched away in a heartbeat.
1: Very concerning to see that story in recent days emerging from Denmark, about the mink farming, concerning obviously because of the the risk, the potential risk to vaccines, but also deeply concerning that a a country such as Denmark, that we think of as an advanced place to live, is still farming millions of mink.
2: Absolutely. Britain has banned mink farming and uh, the farming of foxes for fur as well. Uh, But sadly, it still goes on. It's still widespread in other European countries and across the world. And what we're seeing is that our our chickens, metaphorically, are coming home to roost uh, in that it's recycling the whole COVID-19 thing and putting it back into the human population in a way which is deeply, deeply concerning and setting up the conditions for the virus that we, we know at the moment potentially to mutate again. And that is what we absolutely don't want. So we've got to heed the warning. Actually, I don't see COVID-19 as a warning. I see it as a demonstration of what can happen to society if we don't move towards a more sustainable and compassionate way of life.
1: We've got to make plenty of space, I think, in this podcast for optimism, for hope and for the feel-good factor that has been so largely absent from 2020, because I, I know that in many ways you are an optimist, and like me, you celebrate and, and love nature, and there's plenty to celebrate, and we'll come to that a little bit later. But first we we'll just in synopsis form, spell out to us exactly what Compassionate World Farming does, because one of the things that has struck me about the way that you communicate is you're not an aggressive proselytiser. You're not extreme either in your methods or in your message.
2: Well, Compassion in World Farming really does try to find hope and uh, compassionate ways forward for both people and animals. We work to bring an end to factory farming, to keeping animals caged, crammed and confined. We work through a number of ways, uh, through lobbying governments, uh, through working with corporations, And uh, by informing people and giving them a platform to bring about change, to bring hope, to bring light in uh, in the dark corners of the world. What does our vision of the future look like? Well, it looks like a vision where we have a thriving countryside where all of us can walk, breathe and feel revitalized. A countryside where farmed animals are restored to their natural ecosystem position of grazing animals or foraging animals, in the case of chickens and pigs, moving in rotation around, around the countryside. And we shouldn't forget that Britain, a post-Brexit Britain, is in the perfect position to embrace a wonderful vision of the future. 70% of our entire land surface is agricultural in Britain. Of that, two thirds is pasture. Why don't we use that pasture? Why, oh, why are we putting animals in factory farms when we could be putting them out on grass and in woodland edges and having them move around rotationally in ways which brings the life back to the countryside? So we, we do pride ourselves in having an accessible message, one where everyone can be involved by pressing governments, pressing corporations, to embrace changes that are good for animals, good for people, good for the planet, and making changes in our own lifestyles as well through our uh, food choices three times a day.
1: Let's talk a bit about the maths of this, Philip, if if you'll allow us. So great swathes of the world, obviously not just Britain, are given over to farming and As I understand it, a great majority of those great sways are given over to livestock or to the livestock industry. If we get rid of factory farming, as, as you campaign to do, then unless we eat significantly less meat, that means even greater chunks of the world's surface is going to be taken up by livestock.
2: Well, the fact is that we have to reduce our meat consumption anyway whether we continue factory farming or not, because if we don't, the figures show that business as usual over the coming decades, our food alone, driven by our meat and dairy consumption, will trigger catastrophic climate change without any contribution needed from, from fossil fuels. And there's a reason for that, that already our production of livestock across the planet produces Uh, as much greenhouse gas emissions as the the exhaust fumes from all the world's planes, trains and cars put together. So we really do, for the sake of the planet, to stop runaway climate change we have to reduce our um, meat and dairy consumption and here is the sweet spot reducing the amount of meat that we all eat getting the animals back on on the land really can revitalize the countryside revitalize the climate because one of the things which happens when you get animals back on the land is that they help uh, the soil to start absorbing uh, carbon to start taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So positive, positive ways uh, to utilize a compassionate way of keeping animals with a a climate-friendly future. But you know, some of the maths, we can go into in some of the maths. The, The fact is that half of the world's land surface, habitable land surface, is devoted to food production. Half the habitable land surface devoted to food production. Of that, 83%, more than four-fifths, is devoted to producing livestock, meat and dairy. Of that four-fifths, what that yields in terms of calories and protein is 37% of humanity's protein and 18% of humanity's calories. We're being short-changed by the meat industry. We have to change.
1: So just to understand and unpick those maths, it's not good enough, is it, just to let the animals that are currently being farmed roam more freely? Because if we were to do that, the amount of land that that would take up would hugely increase. And if you increase the amount of land that is given over to farming, then you're reducing the amount of land that is forestry, presumably which is a very bad thing for climate change. So to be absolutely crystal clear, it's not just that we've got to stop factory farming, but we've got to eat far less meat.
2: Correct. We need to reduce our meat and dairy consumption by at least 50%, by at least 50% globally in a very short time uh, over the next uh, couple of decades. Uh, And, high-consumption countries, regions of the world, like Britain and Europe, like America, we need to see that consumption uh, figure drop rapidly. Otherwise, we will trigger catastrophic climate change. Otherwise, we will eat into remaining forests and wildlands. Otherwise, we will see the soils that we rely on for our fruit and our vegetables, our cereals, we will see those soils become useless Uh, as they ebb away into our rivers uh, and release carbon into the atmosphere.
1: And remind us how many more harvests you think we have as things stand.
2: Well, I actually don't know, Matt, but what I can tell you is that leading scientists and the United Nations will tell us that if we continue farming industrially the way that we are now, then at best, We have 60 harvests left in the world's soils before they are useless. What that means is that we have less than a human lifetime left of producing food from the soil. And given that 95 or more percent of our food comes from the soil, it does beg the question, then what?
1: The good news is that it's not actually that difficult to give up meat. And I can talk from personal experience very briefly. Of course, if you are going to transfer to a vegan diet, you need to consider where you're getting the sorts of nutrients and goodness and all the rest of it, vitamins and so forth. I'm no expert. that you need. But that caveat aside, I was on stage towards the end of last year with Jonathan Safran Foer, who wrote that book, Eating Animals. I was actually talking to him about another book. But we, of course touched on meat eating and he got me essentially persuaded me to commit to doing more for the environment than I currently was. And so I, under a bit of pressure in front of this live audience, said that I would give up beef for the remainder of the year. So it was two or three months. And I did find it very, very easy. So that's encouraging. Now I've slipped back during the pandemic because I, I worried that I I needed to sort of fill myself up with goodness i was probably filling myself up with some badness as well but the message is it can be done even if you love eating meat you can transfer to a non-meat-eating diet
2: absolutely i mean the the possibilities are growing all the time you know the fact is that most of humanity's calories already come from plants uh, and that, that's a statistical fact that um most of our calories come from from plants. Most of our protein comes from plants. More than half our protein comes from plants. Things like uh, you know bread and beans uh, and things of this nature. But increasingly, plant based alternatives to meat are uh, tasting and feeling very similar. The Beyond Meat burger, the Impossible Burger, corn uh, type products from uh, from mycoprotein, uh, and Then there is this profusion of technology that is bubbling under the surface at the moment. The production of meat without animals, meat from stem cells, cultured meat, as I like to call it, because that's how it's produced. It's it's produced in cell culture. That could have a transformative impact on the food system as we know it. And then in amongst all of this, there has been an also a groundswell in the idea of fermentation. Now, there's nothing new in fermentation, think bread and wine, but increasingly there's been the use of industrial scale uh, fermenters to produce um, biomass proteins for food. Corn is one of those techniques where you essentially fold uh, cereals with uh, with a fungus uh, and the fungus replicates and produces uh, prime protein at a hell of a rate. But now things are moving on to the point where something they're calling precision fermentation means that you can marry uh, fermentation with bacteria uh, and fungus so microorganisms that are programmed to produce specific protein molecules and what this will enable us to do is to produce protein be it for plant products or for producing cultured meat or or producing ingredients for fantastic foods that we could never think of at the moment, that we could never imagine. These things could be produced at a fraction of the cost of the current meat industry. So what we're seeing is a profusion of plant-based alternatives, but a bubbling up of innovation, which means that actually we can start, Matt, we can start to see that the livestock system that we know and hate in factory farming, could actually tumble under the weight of new innovation in just a few short years, 10, 15, 20 years time. And if you marry that with the urgency of the need for us to come away from the uh, resource intensive uh, climate heating livestock sector, then you can see that this change in the food system can't come quick enough.
1: Explain to us why you don't go the full hog, no pun intended, and preach veganism. You yourself are a vegan. Why, why do you stop at trying to encourage kinder farming methods rather than saying to us, Look, let's just give up meat altogether?
2: Well, the reality is that uh, we want to take people with us on the journey to saving the planet, to saving a future for our children, and to stopping animal cruelty. And so that means that we, that I believe that we have to present more than a single solution. The planet is not going to be solved, not going to be saved by a single magic bullet. It's going to need a machine gun fire of lots of different solutions in rapid succession and in concert, fired by lots of people, by a groundswell movement. And so that's why I say to people, Do your best. Let's all do our best. Eating more plants and less and better meat is a fantastic step that we can all do today. And by less and better meat, I mean by better meat, I mean from pasture fed, free range or organic systems. And in the future, as cultured meat comes on stream as proteins from precision fermentation come on stream and are a fraction of the cost of meat as we know it from animals today. This will mean that we can fill our shopping baskets with these new solutions in a way which will enable the unthinkable to happen, which is that factory farming will will collapse and the planet will be saved.
1: Earlier, Philip, you you talked about the post-Brexit opportunities. It seems to me indisputable that a Biden presidency is good news for the environment. This is going to reverse so much of the damage that Donald Trump has managed to achieve in four short years. But there are problems, aren't there, with the post Brexit world for us here in this country. We're going to be scrambling for a trade deal with America. And the big worry is that we will start importing great quantities of meat that is the result of cruel practice in the United States. Tell us your view on that and Help us understand the differences between the way meat is farmed, not not exclusively, but perhaps generally you can fill us in in America, compared to how it's done here.
2: You're absolutely right that one of the big worries in a post-Brexit world is that Britain signs a trade deal with America that allows US agriculture to shift uh, factory-farmed produce into Britain in a way that undermines uh, the standards that we have in this country. What I'm not saying is that Britain has uh, the highest um, aspirational standards of animal welfare in the world. Some people say that, particularly from the farming industry. Um, It is hyperbole. It is... uh, It's without substance. We have some standards to be proud of, but yet in Britain, still the majority of animals are factory farmed. That's the fact of the matter. But a US trade deal could allow products produced to even worse standards to come into Britain. Things like uh, chicken meat from animals that have been kept in closed, windowless sheds, uh, and to the point where they're so disease-ridden that they have to be treated with chlorine to uh, effectively disinfect them, uh, or hormone-treated beef products, so beef cattle that have been reared not in a field on grass, but in a feedlot where they're fed grain and given hormones to make them grow even quicker. What I know from my own journey into America is that the U.S. is really the spiritual and practical birthplace of factory farming, and that no one does factory farming worse, bigger, more intensive than the United States of America. So yes, we have made strides in, in Britain in terms of animal welfare legislation. Yes, we've got a lot farther to go yet. But the strides that we've made could be undermined at a stroke by a bad trade deal with America.
1: It's interesting because we we talked earlier about Denmark in the context of the mink farming and there are many ways in which some people would look to Scandinavian countries as exemplars of how to get things right, yet we've just seen in the case of Denmark that we can't do that when it comes to animal welfare. You said that it's hyperbole that we've got the best standards in the world in this country. Is there a country that we can look to as a positive example?
2: Yeah, Matt, I get asked that question all the time and I find it really hard to answer. And there are countries that have led the way in specific developments around animal welfare. Switzerland banned battery cages for laying hens uh, way back in the early 90s, leading the way. Sweden has some fantastic animal welfare laws, uh, too. You know, if you go to, to some of the developing countries where factory farming hasn't really taken a foothold, animals are still part of a sustainable, regenerative farming system. But every country has its dark side uh, when it comes to, 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 animals. And so I think it really is, you know, what aspect do you want to look at as to, to where, where the lead is being taken? Britain led the way in banning veal crates, tiny, narrow, coffin-like crates where calves can't turn around for six months of their life. In fact, their entire life, because they're killed at six months old. Britain banned that system in 1990, and we led the banning of that system across the European Union um, quite some years later. And therein is another of the the downsides of a post-Brexit Britain, that some of the leadership qualities on animal welfare and other issues that that Britain has um, brought to bear in Europe, making reforms happen not just in Britain but in 27 other countries, that mechanism for change, for amplifying change, will no longer be open to us in that post-Brexit Britain world. So it's difficult to answer that, Matt, but yeah. It's some and some.
1: We scroll through your Twitter feed and you have a very healthy following on social media. You can find upsetting scenes of the way in which some cows, some calves are farmed in America. When I did a trip retracing my ancestral roots to Vienna back in 2011, I think, I got there in full expectation of being rewarded with a Wienerschnitzel at the end of it. And then in one of the main squares there, there was this sort of truck. And on the back of the truck, there had this big screen. And onto the big screen were these horrific images of animal mistreatment. And it put me off the beanishness. and it's also had a mushroom pizza m- instead. Where are we with the psychology of all this? Why is it that you'll find people up and down this country talking to their dogs, describing themselves as mummy or daddy to their dogs, and yet we are able to dissociate the suffering that goes on in farming with our enjoyment of the meat?
2: I think the psychology can be boiled down to the phrase out of sight, out of mind, that you know, our dog, our cat, uh, our other beloved pets, we, we can see them and interact with them and they're part of our family. But farmed animals, particularly factory farmed animals, are behind closed doors. We don't see them. We don't even see them in fields very often anymore because they are locked away uh, in these sheds. And the industry likes to keep it that way, which is why the bad stuff, the factory farmed stuff, isn't labeled in ways which tells you how this animal lived and died. They don't want you to connect the meat with a living animal. What they do is try to sell you it as farm fresh or country fresh something which disguises the reality of how the animal lived and died. So it's that out of sight, out of mind disconnect that modern society has constructed, a great divide between our pets, our animals that we can see in our our streets, in our paddocks, uh, and those animals that are locked away in these horrific factory farms
1: it's a perverse failing isn't it and it's a great divider actually between people such as myself who who consider I'd, I'd like to think of myself as a broadly speaking decent person and then people such as yourself who who have given up meat i mean it's it's strange it's it's not just strange that people like me don't act more on what we know on some level goes on it's also strange that we're able to live in a sort of twin-track society where some of us can make that leap of imagination and others so far haven't. What would be your message to people like me?
2: Well, my message is uh, you know, that, that it's important for us to join the dots, that cruelty to animals also undermines uh, the planet and the viability of, of human society. So it's important that we start to make these connections as individuals. Uh, It's not surprising that that there is this great divide in society at the moment, because if you think back, it was only the 1990s where Compassion in World Farming led a successful campaign to get Europe to recognise animals as sentient beings, as in animals that can feel pain and suffer and are living, (coughs) breathing creatures rather than just goods. You know, the law didn't recognise that fundamental animalness of being alive. And sadly, in leaving the European Union, Um, Britain uh, has has lost that legal recognition of animals as sentient beings. And we need to reinstate that. To be fair to the government, the government wants to reinstate that legislation, or at least that's what they're saying, in Britain, to make it happen in Britain. But it's not happened yet, so we're pressing on that. But I do think that making the great connection uh, and uh, doing ourselves a favour on our plate by ensuring that that we, we go for the compassionate choice which is pasture-fed, free-range, or organic. And also eating a little less meat, I think, is is really important for our health, for our countryside, and for the animals that otherwise are going to be incarcerated.
1: So let me ask you to envisage a world in which your stated aims are achieved. And we live in a a compassionate world where there is no factory farming. Animals are, are treated with respect during their lifetimes, they, they're given adequate grazing space and living space, and then they're killed still for their meat. Is, is that a world that obviously is infinitely preferable to the one in which we currently live, but is that a world that you would feel is any way morally justifiable? In other words, would there not be a sadness, and, and I, this sounds very much like an excuse for meat-eating, and you can shoot it down, but would there not be a sadness if the world was simply stripped of pigs and, and cows and so forth entirely in order to stop the, the suffering at the moment of death?
2: Well, I think the problem that we've got is we've, we're increasingly living in a world that is stripped of wildlife, stripped of wild lands, so that we can have um, most of the habitable you know much of the habitable land surface of the planet um providing us with with products from pigs cows and chickens that's the truth do you want me to put a figure on it um in the last 50 years since the widespread adoption of factory farming the world has lost more than two-thirds of all its wildlife i can't believe that i stood up on a stage in 2017 a conference that compassion and world farming ran called extinction and livestock and told the audience that 50% of wildlife had disappeared since the widespread adoption of factory farming. Now we're talking about more than two-thirds. Well, actually, 68% of wildlife has disappeared, displaced to a great extent by that weight of domesticated pigs, cattle, and chickens. Uh, So that is where the the tragedy is. Um, I do feel that the future certainly in this, uh, you know, in the next um, 20, 30, 50 years is a blend where we have far fewer farmed animals, but they're integrated in the countryside, in nature-friendly farming, which enhances animal welfare and provides better, healthier food for people. And, And by doing that, we can bring nature back. We can reverse the shocking loss of wildlife, which, by the way, I should say is essentially the life support system for humanity. We rely on the natural world, the wildlife and the plants for every breath we take, for every drink that we have uh, and for every bite of food that we eat. So we really have to get a world much more in balance. But to answer your question about moving beyond Uh, the slaughtering of animals, I think one of the things that we can have in the future because of cultured meat is a world where we bring wildlife back, where if we choose to, we've got some farmed animals, but where people can feel free to eat meat with a clean conscience because that meat can come from cultured production, slaughter-free meat, meat without the animals.
1: In in other words, there is no universe that you would encourage in which it is a moral choice to eat meat if it is the result of slaughter. As I said earlier, you don't you don't you you don't proselytise about that element of it because you want to take people with you. But from your point of view, there is and can be no moral justification for eating as a consequence of slaughter.
2: But many vegans do take that that moral standpoint. Uh, and you know, my starting point is, you know, why did I become involved in the animal welfare movement in the first place? It was because I looked into the eyes of animals that were behind bars and incarcerated for their whole of their life. I've been in slaughterhouses in Britain and across the world, and I've looked into the eyes of animals that are being killed. I can see the pain and suffering in the eyes of those animals. Which is what gives me the energy after 30 long years of being part of this struggle for a more compassionate world. It gives me the energy to carry on. So, Matt, if you are saying to me, I could foresee a world where no animals are slaughtered, why would I not take that as a vision of the future? But I'm also a realist, Matt. I'm also a realist that in a world where meat consumption, Per person is increasing at the same time as there are more vegans and vegetarians in the, in the world, certainly in the developed world, people are eating more meat. That's a reality. And that is the tanker we've got to turn around. So whilst personally, I would like to see a world where we didn't have to take animals lives for meat. I'm also a pragmatist in that we're doing it more today than ever before, we've got to do something to relieve the suffering of animals that live their entire lives in factory farms.
1: I want to come back to wildlife and and the risks facing wildlife, the damage already done to wildlife, but then the positivity that we can find and how it might have helped many of us during lockdown. But just before we do that, that, that very personal explanation of where you're coming from, it's a, it's a good jumping off point just to ask you a little bit about how you arrived on this journey in the first place I mean I having become friends with you over the years and interviewed you many times I actually know very little about how you got to where you got to so in one minute or one and a half minutes but give us your biography
2: well Matt I've always had a, a fascination with wildlife I was a schoolboy naturalist I'd be out in the forests and uh uh, and by the riversides looking for wildlife when I was a small boy. When I got into my teenage years, I, I started as a volunteer cleaning toilets on a Norfolk nature reserve. That was probably not far off the pinnacle of my career in conservation. And um, I, I, I became pricked by an interest in animal welfare, which gave me an alternative calling. I went into animal welfare and I met in 1990 a most phenomenally humble but visionary chap called Peter Roberts, he was the founder of compassion in world farming. I went for a job with him. I had an interview for a job uh, with him. i didn't get that job because he told me I didn't have the the experience, but he saw in me an enthusiasm, something to build on, so he gave me an alternative, albeit lesser job, as his assistant and i grasped it with both hands and here 30 years on from grasping that 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 job with both hands i'm here talking to you still fighting on for a better day for animals and people on the planet
1: so let's talk about wildlife and nature and our enjoyment of it as well as not doing nearly enough personally in terms of reducing my meat consumption at the moment i also On the on the on the plus side of my resume promote the celebration of wildlife. I wrote the book How to See Birds, and it was all about trying to encourage people to see the beauty on their doorstep, trying to offer them a key to this exciting world that they might not otherwise have been privy to, even though these birds are all around us. Before we talk about the the importance of everyday beauty and, and enjoying our natural habitat, we should probably still focus on the negative, which is that, as you say, so many species have already become extinct. So many species are at risk of becoming extinct. I think I read in the papers over the weekend that garden birds, the sort of birds that come to our our garden tables or to our feeders, are threatened if climate change continues along its current trajectory. So there is a lot to be deeply concerned about. What is the best way of protecting the natural world, and that will tie together some of what we've spoken about already.
2: Well, I think the best way to protect the natural world is to move away from industrialized agriculture, uh, which is essentially uh, a form of agriculture where farmed animals are removed from the land and put into cages and in confinement, as we've discussed, and where which looks like a space saving idea but actually isn't because you then have to devote vast tracts of of uh, relatively scarce arable land elsewhere to grow their food. So instead of the animals earning their own living on the pastures of Britain or the woodland edges of the countryside, they're feeding on grain that could be feeding people. And this is a a huge waste of, of food. If you want me to put a figure on it, worldwide, every year we produce enough food and then waste it in feeding to factory farmed animals to feed an extra four billion people on the planet. That's more than half of humanity today lost in that transaction. Now, that's not to say that four billion people on the extra people on the planet all at once would be a good idea because it would be an environmental disaster. But it's to say that counterintuitively, without factory farming, we could feed everyone on the planet better and with less farmland not more. So how do you bring wildlife back? You stop farming industrially, you integrate wildlife back into the farmland, which covers most of our land surface, certainly in Britain, and half the land surface, the habitable land surface of the planet, you bring wildlife back through nature friendly farming, which also benefits the welfare of animals and produces healthier food. Remember that keeping animals on grain instead of grass, Increases the amount of saturated fat and reduces the amount of protein uh, available in the meat. So, whichever way you look at it, preserving the world's wildlands by not bulldozing them to produce cropland to feed factory farmed animals is a great way to go. And keeping the chemical pesticides and fertilizers that are used in industrial agriculture, keeping them in the barn and the animals on the land where they can fertilize. The land naturally. This is the way to carve out a decent future with a thriving wildlife.
1: So when I'm bird watching, I, I I can lose myself in a different world. It's, it's a form of meditation for me. If I go into a little woodland in the Welsh hills. I'll look up and, uh, and maybe see a coal tit, and then that coal tit will lead me to a family of long-tailed tits. And the long-tailed tits might find me a greenfinch, and before I know it, I'm I'm lost. And and all preoccupations, all the the trials and tribulations of daily life that we all experience, disappear for that that short period of time. It's probably the best way I can describe it. And I also lose myself when I'm photographing birds. Tell us a little bit about how your experience of nature helps you and how perhaps it can help others as well.
2: Well, I think you've put it very well, Matt, and and your book, by the way, How to See Birds, captures... The beauty of of, of birds and, and the living countryside so well, and and I live on a farm. I live on a farm in in West Sussex, and it, it's been a, an absolute release during lockdown to be able to walk out with Duke, our rescue dog, out in the countryside and just see what what's there. You know, to, to see, as you say, songbirds in in the hedges um, and and. And and to see the kingfisher darting along the stream, see the red kite and the buzzard um, gliding overhead. Beauty is everywhere in nature. And I think what people have increasingly come to connect with during this awful, awful COVID period is the fact that we all need nature. We all need nature, not just for our well-being in this moment but for our very survival. So we, we need to protect it. We can all do our bit. And it is as simple as not only getting behind conservation charities and animal welfare charities like Compassion and World Farming, but also eating an animal-friendly, nature-friendly diet. And by that, I mean more plants, less and better meat from nature-friendly, pasture-fed, free-range or organic sources. This way we can join the dots make sure that the birds stay in the trees, make sure that the trees themselves stay there and make sure that the soils on which we all depend continue to nurture the very best, tastiest, healthiest
1: food. And it helps us, I think, probably to, to understand that our ecosystems are so intimately interconnected and interdependent. I think there was another piece on your Twitter timeline that talked about the... Degradation of fish stocks in, in in the the big river that that transcends the border of, of Tanzania and, and Kenya, and if fish are going, that's a bad sign for other wildlife. There are all these knock on effects, and of course, the biggest contributor of knock on effects is us, isn't it? It's mankind how we treat our landscape. So if we can appreciate as individuals. That beauty on our doorstep, whether it's in your local park. And I think we should emphasize to people in lockdown that there is great biodiversity, even if you're in a an inner city. I mean, London is wonderfully endowed with a huge range of parks, and something that I've availed myself of very much more over the, the past few months. But whether you're a, whether you're in an in an inner city or whether you're like you in the countryside, there is a great abundance there. And if we can appreciate that and spread the word about it, either literally through word mouth, or, in my case, through photography, then it ties us more closely and more intimately to the natural world. And I hope, although it's it's, it's, it's not a given, that that then encourages us to take more of an interest in how we can protect that world from ourselves.
2: Absolutely. I think it's that connectivity. I talked about looking into the eyes of the animals, and I make a habit of that, looking into the eyes of animals, be they farmed animals, incarcerated, or wildlife. And like you, one of my abiding passions is is wildlife photography. And I've started to do lectures now on on photography, and when people say, what is the, the, the key thing? And I say, personality. You're looking for the personality in your subject. And how do you bring out that personality? You look into the eyes, bring out those eyes. And it's that connectivity with the countryside, with the food on our plate, looking into the eyes of our future. Joining the dots,
1: so important. I want to finish, Philip, by asking you about your experience of looking into the eyes of other human beings, people who are contributing directly to the disasters facing our natural world. So the the people who are doing the industrialised farming, how do you turn them around? Can you get inside their heads or does it have to come top down from government through regulation?
2: I think some people are persuadable. I've met some brilliant, brilliant regenerative nature-friendly farmers in, in Britain, America and elsewhere. Who used to be factory farmers and they saw that actually a compassionate, regenerative way is a better way. So some people are definitely open to persuasion, to making the switch to a better way. But I do think that the scale of the challenge and the time scale, we don't have long left to solve climate change, to solve the collapse of nature, to solve the current pandemic and, and, and future health threats. We don't have long left, which is why it has to be driven by societal leaders. Politicians, leading companies have to get involved. The United Nations, what we need is for governments, companies, the United Nations, essentially to seal a global agreement to move away from a food system rested on, resource. Uh, squandering, hugely cruel and damaging health-threatening factory farming, a move to a regenerative food future with a profusion of protein from a range of different sources that uh, not dependent on factory farming. We need that leadership. We need it urgently. But that leadership can be inspired by a movement made up of you and I and everyone listening to this podcast, each of us can do something three times a day on our plate by eating more plants, less and better meat from animals that are pasture fed, free range and organic. And if you want to help push those leaders directly into saving the future for our children, then join Compassion in World Fund. We'll send you updates on a regular basis. We won't snow your inbox. Don't worry, but we'll give you good ideas, easy ideas to make a more compassionate world for all of us.
1: Philip Limbury, thank you so much for joining the How to Academy podcast.
2: A real pleasure. Thank you, Matt.
0: This week's podcast starred Philip Limbury and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. If you're inspired by the show, you'll love How to Change the World, our digital conference featuring some of the most exciting activists artists and innovators alive today. John Kerry will be there to talk about the climate crisis and the post-Trump world, and Sebastio Salgado will join us to explore his life documenting life on planet Earth. You can find out more at howtoacademy.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.